be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. On the nights of August 9th and August 10th, 1969, members of a cult known as the Family brutally murdered seven innocent people, leaving a scene so chaotic, authorities had trouble connecting the murders, despite their similarities. The true motives for these heinous crimes have led to numerous conspiracies and theories, including the prosecution's theory of creating a race war they dubbed Helter Skelter. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Gary Quarter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Quarter. How we doing? We'd like to give a shout-out once again to Lucy out in Yass, New South Wales. Uh, yesterday, I received a care package all the way from Australia with a couple of uh, koozies, keep our beers cold, a bag that says a great piece of Yass. Thank you so much, Lucy, and uh, for sending us these little keepsakes from your hometown. Uh, means so much to us. Uh, we'll post some pics on Instagram. Uh, for the record, you know, other than TikTok, uh, myself and Garrett are the ones who admin all of our social media. Uh, on TikTok, it's myself and our friend uh, at His Chaos, who I may add has been doing an amazing job getting us to nearly 10,000 followers. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the reason I say this is because uh, most of the popular podcasts out there have social media teams who monitor their social media. But that is one thing that we will never give up on because we value in building relationships with real people. And in return, we want to want you to have all the confidence that you are speaking directly to who you think you are talking to. Yes. You know, since uh, we have been doing this, we've made some meaningful friendships uh, with people across the world. And some are actually shocked to receive a message back from me, you know, expecting some random admin, you know. So it's amazing. We love our uh, fans, especially that, the diehards. Yes. So the best fans in the world. So please feel free, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, you know, message us, even if it's just to say hi, and it will be us saying hello back, guaranteed. I uh, just want to throw that out there. I am so excited for this episode. Oh, yeah. It's my favorite. This is, yeah, you, my, you've been waiting for this. It's one. my favorite murders. It, I mean, it's it's everything. It's sexy. It's got a, it's got a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of everything. Yes. Like, Conspiracy it, theories, CIA, murders, cults, a crazy individual. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Uh, before we get into that, for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a true crime podcast. <laughs> We <laughs> talk of murder, rape, assault. Uh, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> there will be talk of murder, rape, torture, assault, and pretty much any crime that would haunt your nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be some vulgar language. Like fuck. Yes, like fuck. Of course, like fuck. Because I fucking love fuck. Now, we understand that Colonel AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. If it's not for you, hey, you know, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the debauchery. We are going to kick things off with Florida Man of the Day. man 47 arrested after threatening to shoot his parents who refused to give him money to buy aerosol spray for his huffing habit the fucking nerve of those oh my god 
Mom! God, Mom! Crap! I just want to huff some paint. <laughs> oh my! Oh, we gotta, we gotta. You put, never let me do anything. We, we gotta put this guy's mugshot on Instagram. <laughs> we have to. If I, if you're gonna tell me, describe a huff, uh, a huffer to the T. That's that man. Oh my God! Yeah, it that is. is that man. All right. A man was arrested on Saturday after Marco Island Police. There's so many interesting uh, town names in Florida. There are. There is, it's very. Because you can get the nice ones, Palm Bay, yeah. like, you know, all these these spots. And then there's, like, random Fruitland, like, from last episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> orange tree, orange, Florida. Yeah, orange tree, orange blossom, like. All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> A man was arrested on uh, Saturday after Marco Island police say he threatened to shoot family members and led officers on a vehicle pursuit. According to Marco Island Police Department, James Lang, 47, was arrested after MIPD responded to a 911 call on Saturn Court. The caller reported that Lang threatened to shoot household members. This dispute began when Lang asked his parents for money so he could buy a can of aerosol spray for his huffing habit. As I swear to God, if I don't get a paint can right yeah. now, I'm fucking shooting all just, of you. I just need one aerosol can, please. As officers arrived, they saw Lang speeding away from the residence. A short vehicle pursuit insert. Of course, it was short. The guy was fucked up on, <laughs> on a can of aerosol. You can't drive on that shit. But Lang returned to his home after losing a tire on his vehicle. Oh, he almost made it. Oh, so Officers close. conducted a felony traffic stop and found a loaded 9mm handgun and, and around seven Oh, cans, he wasn't kidding. Yeah, and around seven cans of dust-off aerosol spray in the car. <laughs> MIPD says Lang has an extensive criminal history in Collar County and is currently on state probation. He has, was taken into custody and transported to Naples Jail Center. Lang faces charges of fleeing um, and eluding law officers with emergency lights on, sirens activated, aggravated assault with intent to commit a felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and violation of state probation. Jesus. Uh, hey. Imagine, imagine when he shows up in court and they're like, how do you plead? He's like, not guilty. And he's got fucking like... The gold. Fuchsia. Well, no, the, no, it's the gold. I'm oh, telling gold you. I've, I've watched... I, I watched gold a, on his face? I've watched a 60 Minutes documentary about... Uh, Paint uh, huffing, yeah, and it, it's wild. It's some for some reason they all have gold yeah. sprayed on them because I guess the go- whatever is in the gold is the best one. Is oh, the that's best. the good shit. It's the good shit. That's it's good the shit. best stuff, and it's terrifying too when you see somebody inactive. I, I remember, I, if anybody who's listening has seen you just this made it sound really good. I, I think I might go try it now. Man. You don't want to trust the way, me. You, the way you just talked it up. Trust me, okay. you don't want to try. It. Well, don't trust me, but I've never done. I've never huffed paint or huffed anything. <laughs> Hopefully, you stay away from that Tr- gold. Trust me, that gold, <laughs> that gold speckle. <laughs> no, yeah. um, no, no, I trust me from watching this documentary. And I, if anybody's seen it, I'm telling you, it stuck with them. It was two twins who were homeless in the back of an alley. And these, it was on an episode of 60 Minutes or something yeah. like that. And these guys, they're completely out of it. They had no clue who they were. They basically huffed themselves. It's crazy. They, they basically they basically huffed themselves to a point where they, they have no regulation of who they are, where anything is. They they're just falling over. They got scabs and bruises all over them because they can't even move. It's 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 actually a very sad drug addiction. And, pain. and this is like for life. Yeah, oh yeah, you're yeah. you're because you're destroying your brain cells. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a very sad drug addiction. It's normally 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 homeless people do it because it's cheap. Oh. Thanks for being a buzzkill. Sorry. It's, I'm, I'm just putting out facts. I'm just saying, when you're at a party and somebody gives you a can of fucking spray paint, don't take it. Just say no. I had all these jokes lined up. Just Eric say just no. Fucking... I bet you that guy can smell across the fucking town, though. Yeah. <laughs> and we're back. All right. We're back. All right. Well, uh, let's get into this. Uh, 
episode because I'm very excited. Very okay. Good. All right. So uh, for this episode, like what we're going to do is we're going to do things a little different. So rather than what we usually do is break it down chapter by chapter, we'll introduce the key characters to, in the story, what roles they played in the family, uh, events leading up to the infamous Tate and LaBianca murders, and then we'll go in a bit of a detail on you know what these ind- individuals were like you know before and, and during their time with the family. Uh, so without further ado, this is part one of a multi-episode special on Charles Manson titled The Family. Charlie was furious. The crew he sent out the night before was supposed to be his best, but they fucked it all up. They were sloppy, chaotic, and there was no way anyone would believe that an organized group like the Black Panthers would be the ones to pull this fiasco off. His plan of creating a race war, where he and his followers would come out as leaders of the New World, had to go off without a hitch. He told his people that they would need to go out again tonight, and this time, he would be there to ensure it would go according to plan. He remembered the house of an associate to the family, Harold True located at 3267 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz Hills section of Los Angeles. Charlie and his crew piled into the car and head out. There were a couple of occasions along the way where Charlie had thought of different targets. First, there was a priest standing outside of a church. Then there was the man who pulled alongside of them as they were driving. But Charlie decided to stick with the original plan. They pulled onto Waverly Drive and stopped outside of the house, which was located up a long driveway. Charlie and his right-hand man, Tex Watson, who spearheaded the murders the night before, exited the vehicle, walked up to the house, and broke in. They quickly subdued the two occupants of the home, leaving the woman in the bedroom and moved the man to the living room. They promised that they were in no danger. They simply wanted to rob the place. Charlie then exited the house and walked back to the car where he instructed followers Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten to join Tex inside the house and murder the occupants. There was one slight wrinkle in the plan, however. The house where they were at was not that of Harold True. It was the house next door, 3301 Waverly Drive, the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. This is one theory of many that have added to the lore of the Manson family. But according to the prosecutor who tried the case, it's the official version. When talking about the Manson family, there are several twists and turns. Numerous characters who were in and out of a timeline that only span two years, yet you could write full stories on each of these subplots. With this episode, we will start with Charles Manson, his early life, and the people that came to form the family followed by the prosecutor's theory of Helter Skelter, the Tate murders, and the LaBianca murders. We will end the Manson episodes with alternate theories that have gained traction over the years, such as the drug burn theory, the copycat theory, and the Revelations Chapter 9 theory. Charles Manson was born, no name Maddox, on November 12, 1934, in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
to a promiscuous, alcoholic, 16-year-old runaway named Kathleen Maddox, as his mother didn't bother to give him an actual name. After a few weeks, Kathleen's mother named him Charles Mills Maddox. Charles's father was a man that went by the name of Colonel Walker Scott, and he lived in Kathleen's hometown in Ashland, Kentucky. Manson would state that he never knew his father, but this has been disputed. Prior to his birth, his mother married a transient and soon changed Charles's last name to suit that of his stepfather. By the time Charles Manson turned one, William and Kathleen split, and she brought Manson back to Kentucky. The first years of Manson's life were filled with neglect by his mother. She was set to work as a prostitute, performing her duties with Charles in the same room. One night, when Manson was about three or four years old, Kathleen brought him to a local pub. The waitress made a comment on how she would love to have a little boy. Manson's mother told the waitress, he's yours for a pitcher of beer. The waitress brought Kathleen the pitcher. She guzzled it down with Manson in her lap, got up and left, with young Manson still sitting in the booth. A relative spent the next few days trying to track down Charles to bring him back to his mother. At the age of five, his mother was sentenced to five years in prison for armed robbery, and Manson was shipped off to live with his grandparents and then his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. Charles would act out, be punished excessively. When Charles was eight, Kathleen returned to collect her son, but the neglect and abuse persisted. By age 10, Charles was sent to his first boys' school because his mother was deemed unfit due to her excessive drinking. He would escape these schools numerous times and ultimately find himself in a reformatory by the age of 13 after being caught robbing a grocery store. He did make an attempt at a normal life, getting married at the age of 20 to 15-year-old Rosalie Willis in January of 1955. Later that year, they moved from Ohio to Los Angeles in a stolen car, which Manson was eventually arrested for and received five years probation. Rosalie became pregnant and gave birth to Charles Manson Jr. while Manson was in prison for a parole violation. She would visit often during the first year of his sentence, but the visits eventually stopped as Rosalie met another man and divorced Manson in 1958. Rosalie would go on to change the name of Manson's son to Jay White after her new husband. Jay would die in 1993 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Manson would marry again upon his release to a prostitute named Leona Stevens, and Charles would become her pimp. He was arrested again in 1960 for sex trafficking when he drove Leona and another woman into Mexico with the intention of pimping out the women. Leona would claim that she had a son by Manson, but there was no evidence to prove this beyond her claims. The rest of the decade, Manson was in and out of prisons. His crimes were mainly nonviolent, with the exception of sodomizing a boy as he held a knife to his throat. After serving his term for forging a stolen treasury check worth less than $40, Charles Manson was scheduled for release from prison on March 21, 1967. He begged prison officials to keep him locked up because prison was his home. 
Unable to do so, he was released. Manson, along with the guitar he had learned to play in a penitentiary, made his way to the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco, the epicenter of the hippie movement in the Summer of Love. It was here, just a short time after his release, the family was created. Mary Brunner, a 23-year-old library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, was born December 17, 1943, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and experienced a typical Midwestern upbringing. She attended the University of Wisconsin and received a bachelor's degree in history. She was walking her dog when she met Charles Manson. Manson befriended Mary and convinced her to allow him to move into her apartment, and soon after, they became lovers. 18-year-old Lynette Fromm was born in Santa Monica, California. Her family moved to Redondo Beach when Lynette was in high school and soon began experimenting with drugs. After falling out with her parents, Lynette ran away and found herself in Venice Beach, homeless and in a depressive state. Soon, she met Charles Manson strumming a guitar near the beach with Mary Brunner, and they began talking. She was entranced by this man's attitude and philosophies, and the three quickly became friends, moving in together in Mary's rented house at 636 Cole Street in San Francisco. By December of 1967, the family grew to seven with the addition of Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Ella Jo Bailey, and a 14-year-old girl named Ruth Ann Morehouse. Susan Atkins was born May 7, 1948, in San Gabriel, California. She was extremely shy throughout her childhood, and as a young teenager, her mother became sick and passed from cancer. Susan's father, unable to cope with the loss of his wife, turned to alcohol and abandoned Susan and her younger brother. The two moved in with relatives, and Susan worked as a waitress while attending high school to help care for her brother. She dropped out of high school in her junior year and moved on her own to San Francisco and took a job, at first, as a telemarketer, and then working at a coffee shop. It was spring of 1967 when she met Charles Manson and joined his commune. Ella Jo Bailey, who was Susan Atkins' roommate at the time of their meeting, was born in Omaha, Nebraska on January 15, 1947. There is very little known about Ella Jo's upbringing, but a picture of her was found in a Michigan high school yearbook from 1965, showing that she moved there at some point in her life. She moved to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood shortly after graduating high school. Both she and Atkins were fascinated with Manson. Brenwinkle was born December 3rd, 1947, in Los Angeles. Her childhood was less than ideal. She was overweight and teased often. She eventually became addicted to diet pills and lost the weight, but she still felt ugly and unwanted. She sacrificed her virginity to a boy in her school so she could feel loved, but the boy never spoke to her again. After high school, she attended a Christian college in Alabama, but moved back to California after one semester. She moved to Manhattan Beach and took a job as a secretary and shared an apartment with her drug-addicted sister. One day after work, 
around September of 1967. She came home to find the apartment filled with people she did not know. Among them was Charles Manson. Manson seduced her into bed that night and showered her with compliments, telling her how beautiful she was. The self-loathing Krenwinkel was hooked on how Manson made her feel. Mary Brunner quit her job as a librarian assistant, and soon the family of seven were traveling along the California coast, into Oregon, Washington State, and Nevada, collecting followers along the way. Nineteen sixty-eight brought an influx of new members to the family, and by the end of the year, their commune grew to fifty. Notable family members that joined during this time were Charles Tex Watson, Leslie Van Houten, Bobby Beausoleil, and Linda Kasabian. Charles Watson has been said to have been Manson's right-hand man because he was the one who led the Tate and LaBianca murders. Others give that designation to Bruce Davis we will speak of later in the story. Charles Watson, later known as Tex, was born on December 2nd, 1945, in Dallas, Texas. People in his hometown described him as the boy next door. He was an A student and a star athlete in high school, setting a state record in low hurdles. After high school, Tex attended college but dropped out in 1966 and moved to California. A chance meeting with a rock star lead him to Charles Manson. Linda Kasabian was born Linda Druin on June 21, 1949. She grew up in a small town in New Hampshire where her parents struggled financially and argued often. When she was a young child, her parents divorced and her father left town. She was described as a good student and intelligent in her high school years, but due to an unhealthy relationship with her stepfather, She quit school at the age of 16 and traveled out west to find God. During her pilgrimage, she married, divorced, and made a stop in Florida to reconcile with her father. When that fell apart, she moved to Boston, Massachusetts, where she remarried Robert Kasabian and had a daughter. Things began to sour between her and Robert, so Linda and her daughter moved back to New Hampshire to live with her mother. Robert contacted her a short time later and asked if she would move to the West Coast. Hoping to reconcile, she did, and she met Robert in Topanga Canyon. Robert wanted her to go on an expedition throughout South America with him, but because she had a young child, she declined. With Robert gone, Linda was left alone. She made friends with a woman named Catherine Cher, who told her about a group of hippies who were creating a paradise to escape the social turmoil of the day. Linda was intrigued and decided to visit this paradise and the man responsible for it, Charles Manson. The family took advantage of the open-door policy practiced throughout the hippie movement in California, bouncing from location to location, spreading out amongst different settlements, and meeting up again when it fit their needs. Some of these locations included the Yellow Submarine, a house on Gresham Street in Canoga Park, an apartment on Clubhouse Avenue in Venice, a spiral staircase, an abandoned house in Topanga Canyon that served as a heroin den, 
where Linda Kasabian joined the family, and Barker Ranch in Death Valley, owned by a family member's grandmother. With Mary now pregnant with Manson's child, the family made their way to a spiral staircase to settle in for the time being. Described as having slid off its foundation, the spiral staircase house allegedly had a creek flowing through the first level of the home. It was plagued by an overabundance of rattlesnakes. On April 15, 1968, it was here, Mary Brunner gave birth to her and Manson's child, a boy named Valentine Michael Manson. Mary was assisted in her delivery by the other women in the family. If there was one thing that Manson was determined to do, it was to become a musician. He and his followers would bounce from place to place trying to catch a break into the music industry. It was late spring of 1968 where Manson thought his dreams would finally come true. Dennis Wilson, the drummer and founding member of the Beach Boys, was traveling through Malibu when he saw two female hitchhikers, Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey. He picked them up and drove them to their destination. About a month later, he saw Patricia and Ella Jo hitchhiking again. But this time, Wilson brought the two women to his house at 14400 Sunset Boulevard where they partied together, and Wilson spoke of his following of the Maharishi, and the women spoke of their own spiritual guru, a man they called Charlie. Wilson let the two women stay at his house when he left to go to a recording session. When he returned at 3 a.m., he was met in his driveway by a man who introduced himself as Charles Manson. They walked inside Wilson's home, which was now occupied by about a dozen members of the family, mostly women. Over the course of the night, Manson played and sang songs, and Wilson was mesmerized by him. The family occupied Wilson's home for the next several weeks. This was where Tex Watson was introduced to the family as well. Earlier in the year, Tex had picked up Wilson hitchhiking. The two quickly bonded and became friendly. Tex stayed at Wilson's mansion from time to time, and it was during this period Tex had met Manson, and like Wilson, had become entangled in his web of drugs and women. Dennis Wilson footed the bill for the family during their stay, totaling over $100,000, for things like cash, dental work, and other medical bills, cars, clothes, food, penicillin shots for the constant cases of gonorrhea. It was here that Manson played a song he wrote called Cease to Exist, and Wilson was impressed. Over the next several weeks, Wilson would introduce Manson to a plethora of insiders to help jumpstart his career. Manson met singer Neil Young, who called Manson an improvisational genius. And a talent scout named Greg Jacobson, who wanted to feature Manson, his music, and his family in a documentary. But there were others who met Manson and could see through the bullshit. Fellow Beach Boy Mike Love thought Manson was creepy, and Terry Melker a producer for Columbia Records and son of the actress Doris Day, was wary of Manson and eventually refused to report him and canceled a meeting scheduled at Melker's home, located at 10050 Cielo Drive. Still, Wilson went out of his way to pull strings in order to give Manson a chance at a record deal. Wilson set up a recording session with the Beach Boys label, Brother Records. Manson recorded several tracks, but the session ended badly when Manson allegedly pulled a knife on the studio engineer in a fit of frustration. 
as the weeks pushed on into the summer of 68. Wilson himself began to grow tired of Manson and the family. He repeatedly asked them to leave his home, and when they refused, Wilson walked away, leaving the house, all of its possessions, and the family behind. This act would lead to several run-ins between the two, in which Manson would threaten the lives of Wilson's children. To add insult to injury in their exceedingly souring relationship, Manson's song ceased to exist, which was at one time promised to be on the next Beach Boys album, with a writing credit given to Manson, was added as a B-side to their album 2020, but the name of the song was changed to Never Learn Not to Love. Wilson also changed some of the composition, and Manson was never given credit. Manson, now living on an old movie set called Spawn Ranch with the family, began to spiral into paranoia. Spawn Ranch, owned by a blind elderly man named George Spawn, was once a movie set used for western-themed movies and television shows such as Bonanza, The Lone Ranger, and Zorro, as well as a low-budget softcore porn titled Ram Rider, in which current family member Catherine Scher and future family member Bobby Beausoleil co-starred. George had been a successful milk farmer from Pennsylvania when he, his wife, and their 11 children packed up and moved to California leaving the business behind. He purchased the ranch in 1953, and his livestock business thrived. He added children's pony rides, horses for trail riding, and rented out areas of the 55-acre ranch for traveling carnivals. George met a young, spirited carnival worker named Ruby Pearl, who stayed with him to care for the horses and upkeep, and soon became his lover. His wife growing tired of the ranch and George's infidelity, took their 11 children and moved back to Pennsylvania, though they never divorced. When George passed in 1974, he and his wife were still married. By the time the family moved on to Spawn Ranch in 1968, it was a shadow of its old self, falling into disrepair and was solely used as a place visitors could rent horses to ride through the trails became known as a place where the downtrodden and homeless could live in exchange for upkeep of the property, though not much upkeep was being done. Manson and George came to an agreement that for him and the family to live there, they would care for the property and for the aging George Spahn himself. Manson divvied up the responsibilities of cooking and cleaning to the women of the family, and the men would maintain the more laborious tasks, such as building repairs and caring for the horses, along with Ruby Pearl who had since had a falling out with George, but stayed at the ranch. Lynette Fromm was given the task of caring for George, essentially becoming a de facto wife, responsible for cleaning Spawn's residence, cooking for him, and having sex with him, although other members were also tasked with giving him sexual favors to keep George happy. It was George Spawn who gave Lynette her nickname of Squeaky, for the sound she made when Spawn ran his fingers up her thigh. The location of Spawn Ranch was perfect for Manson, who used its isolation from the real world for total mind control. According to Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, there were no newspapers, no clocks, and the family was cut off from the rest of society. 
Manson created in this timeless land a tight little community of his own with its own value system. It was holistic, complete, and totally at odds with the world outside. Spawn Ranch became Manson's kingdom, where he controlled his people with acid trips, orgies, and hypnotic lectures of what a perfect society would be like, but only if they followed him and his word. The family would go on excursions, or creepy crawlies, as they called them, where they would go to area towns and steal from houses, cars, and whatever else they could get their hands on. Sometimes they would just break into people's homes and move things around to frighten the owners. To the common person, this would seem like a bunch of hooligans creating trouble, but it goes deeper than that. Manson wasn't common, and these creepy crawlies were a way to train his family as his paranoia began to settle in. Manson, still angered by his fallout with Dennis Wilson and the music industry, had a plan in mind, and it came from the Beatles' White Album within the song Helter Skelter. Manson dreamed of being a rock star with notoriety, money, fame, and women, but this was all crumbling before him. He instead piggybacked onto the Beatles' fame, using their music and words to inspire his people. During their nightly gatherings in which Manson would preach to his followers, he began playing and singing Beatles music and essentially interpreting their lyrics into his own gospel. Over time, he would persuade his acid-tripped commune that only he could translate the subliminal messaging within the songs, and if they were to follow his word, they would rise as leaders of a new world. Helter Skelter would be an uprising in which they would create a race war. Manson, a white supremacist, hated black people and viewed the race as violent savages. He believed that black people would be victorious in the race war because of their savagery, but they would be unfit to lead themselves after. So he and his family would hide at their Death Valley Sanctuary at Parker Ranch, where they would morph into winged elves and other fantastic creatures and arise after the race war to claim their supremacy over the blacks. In order for this to happen, a series of events needed to conspire. Murders of rich, white women to be framed as being committed by black men. On August 8, 1968, it was time. He pulled Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel aside and instructed the women to do as Tex tells them. Then he said to Tex, Leave a sign. Something witchy. Charles Manson has always stated that he never knew who his real father was. Because his mother was sent up from Kentucky to Cincinnati, Ohio to be placed in what I would assume to be a home for unwed mothers. Which wasn't <laughs> such uncommon. A, such an old-timey I thing. Know, which wasn't uncommon during the 1930s. However, Manson's mother states that he did, in fact, have a relationship with him. It would spend many weekends at his home when Charles and his mother returned to Kentucky. He claims that the two maintained a relationship up until uh, Colonel Scott's death in 1955. Manson went through a lot of mixed messages when he was a child uh, after his mother was sent to prison. He bounced around between grandparents, aunts, uncles, you name it. Now, his grandparents were fanatically religious, you know, hence them shipping his mother up to the unwed mother's home. So young Manson would live by strict rules when he stayed with them. 
Okay. Followed exactly what I tell you to say, mm-hmm. you know, to do. He bounced from one uncle who thought that Manson was too feminine to be a boy. So he dressed him in girls' clothes when he went to school. And then he bounced to another uncle that allegedly blew himself up in a moonshine still because the local government was about to take his land. You know? Fuck you. Go out with a bang. Yeah. Well, that's, that is, that's such a hippie thing to do, too. Yeah. Blow yourself in a moonshining accident. <laughs> So so after his mother was released, she began dating a man who didn't want any children. So she sent Manson to a school for boys in Indiana. So so unfortunate. Yeah. So unfortunate. I mean, well, if, you know, from the story, his mother of course wasn't, you know, wasn't all there. Mother type. But yeah, so he ran away from the school for boys in Indiana and was arrested for stealing a bike. Now for for this, Manson was sent to to Father Flanagan's Boys Town. Where he ran away from there just after four days. Uh, he's, I would run away from yeah. Father, Father Flanagan. <laughs> Father Flanagan's boys town. I don't know what was going on there, but I can promise you it probably was something shady. Come sit on Father Flanagan's <laughs> lap there. Come boy. get received the body of Christ. <laughs> and the blood. Yeah. All right, go I ahead. bless you, Ski. Uh, so he stole a car and committed several robberies before getting caught and was then sent to the Indiana School for Boys. Now, Manson has stated it was here that he was r- raped repeatedly by the other boys. And once again, he escaped and stole a, stole a car. He crossed state lines with the vehicle, which now made it a federal crime. So the following four years after that, he was sent to four different correctional facilities. Uh, throughout Manson's prison stay, he was continuously monitored by psychiatrists. In 1951, he was characterized as an extremely sensitive boy who has yet not given up in terms of securing some love and affection from the world. In 1952, he was deemed dangerous with homosexual and assaultive tendencies. Crazy. 1952. That's such a 1950s diagnosis of someone's psyche. <laughs> oh, the fact the fact that they even put those together is wild. Yeah. Homosexual and assaultive tendencies. Yeah. Like what? Wow. Yeah, it's like two like two in the same. That's yeah, a problem, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's give him a lobotomy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1955, he was said to have an unstable personality, but has the potential to straighten himself out. Oh, good for him. Hopefully, hopefully it works out well. Mm. Uh, it doesn't. In 1956, <laughs> a psychiatrist noted that Manson was unable to control himself and has a tendency to cut. Manson's behavior was erratic and moody, and he was a classic textbook case of a correctional institute inmate, as noted in 1958. Now, in 1961, he was labeled as an energetic person who hides his loneliness, resentment, and hostility behind a facade facade, 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 facade of superficial ingratiation. What a, what an amazing statement right there, yeah. by the way. I love that. In uh, 1963, Manson was said to be emotionally insecure, intended to involve himself in various fanatical interests. And finally, in 1966, the psychiatrist wrote that Manson was in need of a great deal of help in the transition from institution to the free world. Wow. The warning signs were all there. You think? I don't know. I think he could have turned out to be an all right guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the he was same time, from the fucking start. I agree, but he was also like, I mean, what we learn this later on in the story is he, he's extremely intelligent. He had the talk. He could talk somebody into doing anything. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, he, like there's there's single traits that cult leaders have 
that the, the ability to convince someone to follow you blindly it's it's a trait that only a certain people have and it, it there's so much potential with that trait to use for good that oh yeah yeah that yeah. once once what but once you get a little taste that you could make somebody do whatever you want i mean i could tell you right now it goes south real fast you could probably take every single politician that's in government right now and they could make a fucking leader. just the way that they talk you know i mean Who's going to Nancy Pelosi's farm and living in a polygamous relationship with Lynn? No. Because <laughs> actually, she does got some milkers, dude. Yeah, she does. <laughs> she got them Nancy Pelosi fun bags. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. All right, so next up uh, was Mary Brunner. Now, with Mary, there's not much known about her early life other than when and where she was born, her college education, and where she was working when she met Charles Manson. Now, she was the first one to join Manson in his life of orgies, drugs, and crime. And she was Manson's number one and the first to bear a child in a growing family. She was referred to as Mother Mary, a sign of respect by the others in the family regarding her status in the group. Uh, next up to join the fam- family was Lynette Fromm. Uh, she was born in Santa Monica, California, though she grew up in Westchester. Uh, Lynn was the first of three children. She was a talented, well-liked child that toured throughout the United States and Canada in a song and dance troupe called The Lariats. In junior high, Lynette was active with many after-school activities. She was a member of the Athenian Honor Society as well as the Girls Athletic Club. In her drama class, Lynn befriended a young Phil Hartman. Remember him? It's SNL. He was shot by his wife. You no. remember Phil Hartman? No. Oh, wow. I'm surprised too because I'm pretty savvy with SNL cast members, even the old ones. I'm trying to think of what movies he was in. He played a character. Okay, I've seen it. I got to see a picture. If I see a picture, yeah. I guarantee you I'll, I, would, uh, I would know who he is. When her class gave out superlatives, Lynette was voted personality plus. Mm. As Lynette grew older, the relationship between her and her father grew apart. Neighbors remembered her father as a tyrant who seemed to punish Lynette for little or nothing at all. In high school, Lynette became more rebellious. Uh, using drugs and alcohol. She worked in a canvas shop where co-workers would see Lynn burn herself with lit cigarettes and shoot staples into her forearm with a staple gun. After high school, Lynette bounced around living with different people. She eventually moved back to home and enrolled at El Camino Junior College. It wasn't long before Lynette and her father were fighting again. Two got into a fight over a definition of a word. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the last straw for Lynette. Again, she hit the road, and it was this time that Lynn met Charles Manson on Venice Beach. Impressed by Manson, she quickly decided to leave Los Angeles to travel with Charlie and Mary Brunner. Now, Lynette had a special spot in the family. No one but Manson was allowed to sleep with her. Was she the best-looking one? I'm not going to tell you the best-looking one. Go, come, because, come, come, no, come on, come on. You're, I got to see him. It's creepy. It's creepy. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I wonder why she was the... I don't know. He said this special thing for her, I guess. Now, at Spawn's ranch, uh, Fromm spent most of her time taking care of George Spawn, the blind 80-year-old owner. Lynette would make squeak-like noises when George ran his hands up her legs, so he called her Squeaky, which name stuck. Hey, maybe you want to give me a sponge bath. <laughs> it's time for my sponge bath. Make sure you get deep in those crevices. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so next up is Susan Atkins, who is known as the scariest of the family for her willingness to do whatever Manson asked of her. And she took a great deal of pride doing so. 
When the family was able to get a hold of fake IDs, Manson gave Susan the name Sadie Glutz. So, you know, when you hear different aspects of the stories, you know, you'll hear Susan and you also hear Sadie. It's the same person. Uh, prior to meeting uh, Manson, she served three months in prison in Oregon for a series of armed robberies she committed when two escaped convicts she met at the coffee house where she worked. Uh, upon her release, she managed to make her way to San Francisco and worked as a topless dancer. Susan was always the happiest when the family would go on creepy crawler missions, when they would break into people's homes and steal whatever they could. Now she was a just she was a ride or die. Yeah, she was a ride yeah. or die. She's like, I mean, there's a reason this. why they said she was the scariest of the <laughs> all of them. Uh, if there was nothing of value, uh, they would rearrange items within the house to like freak out the homeowners. Yeah, there's a trend in all these family members too, like. They all lived wild lives, just like wherever that that wherever the path took them, they just jump in a van and find out where to go. Yep. And it's, You'll you, see. you never see that nowadays. Like, like right. I mean, the sixties, that especially the late sixties, was such a crazy carefree time. Yeah, you'll see uh, all of these people. They had parent issues, yep. daddy issues. They were heavily into drugs, and a lot of them had had no direction in life, yep. which is exactly the where perfect. It's the perfect. Because I feel like everybody's looking for a little bit of direction in life, right? You don't, you don't want it. You, it's a, it's a natural feeling to fight that. But I think you always, you always kind of fall in line. Yeah, I mean, if a, if a woman or, or basically anybody, because there's, there's guys that's involved in this as well. Yeah. Um, you know, they're down on their luck. They're shit's not going their way. They're at their last straw, and all of a sudden, this guy just comes along. You're like, hey, Hi, hey, everything's can, gonna be all right. Make you follow me. You. We're going to live a beautiful life of roses and puppies. Fuck, I want to remember what the quote was. It's from, a, uh, it's from do- the documentary that HBO put out of uh, Doe and T. The Comet fucking cult. Oh, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, Heaven's Gate. There's a, it was from that documentary. And it was a, there. It was a psychologist. It was a psychologist talking about what the like, but the way she worded it was so well, and I'm so fucking pissed. That I forgot what it says. But she said basically like opportunity. It takes like it doesn't matter if you're smart, intelligent. Like you, very successful people fucking gave up their entire families and lives. Yeah. Like like it's not just these hippies. It has, it has all these things have to happen. And the oppor- it's like opportunity, just like fucking the the thing, Je- Jeopardy, opportunity, this and that. Yeah. I forgot how she worded it, but it was so good, and I'm pissed that I can't think of it. <laughs> but yeah, but because I, I I feel like Manson prayed, kind of took advantage of you know hippies on their will but that's not the only people that end up falling in cults right I mean let's look at organized religion Ah, we're not gonna go there but yeah (laughs) alright go ahead keep going so Susan's persistence uh, for Manson's attention would cause rifts within the family including Manson himself Uh, she was reportedly kicked out of the family for a while which would just fuel her desire for Manson's acceptance she was often blamed for the family's never ending bouts with gonorrhea well, as, she, as she was known, you know, hey, orgies. What are you gonna do? You know, well, she was known to be uh, one of the more uh, enthusiastic members who uh, participated in these drug fueled orgies. <laughs> Come on, guys, yeah, let's start one right now. Come on, who wants to fuck? <laughs> she's coaching. Yeah, she's over here. <laughs> All right, you go with it. Yeah. Uh, on October seventh of nineteen sixty-eight, Susan gave birth to a son. Uh, Manson was the one who actually named the boy, and he named him Zezozisi. Dad frack. Of course. Uh, many have speculated that Manson was the father, but Susan claims the father to be a short-term family member uh, by the name of Bruce Van Hall. But, I mean, in reality, no one could actually be sure who the father was. Yeah. 
Next is uh, Patricia Krenwinkel. Uh, she was born December 3rd, 1947 in Los Angeles, California. Her parents divorced when she was 17 years old. And at the time, Pat stayed in California with her father while her mother moved to Alabama. After high school, Pat moved to Alabama to live with her mother and attend a Catholic college. She had taught Sunday school in the past and had thought about becoming a nun. But after only one semester, she had enough and dropped out. I guess that was too culty for her. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? That's so ironic. You know, becoming a nun is a little crazy, yeah, but yeah. let's join a cult. It's, yeah. I mean, hand in hand, right? Uh, so she moved back to California where she moved in with her half-sister, Charlene, and got a job as a processing clerk. In September of 1967, she met Lynette Fromm, Mary Brunner, and Charles Manson. After making love with Charlie, Patricia decided to go with him. The girls to San Francisco, leaving her car and her final paycheck behind. Guy had the ultimate riz, man. Yeah. No, Rizard of Oz right now. Yeah. Not only did he like talk, talk to her into joining the cult, he was on the very first day of meeting. Like, yeah, we'll be in. In the van. Christen you into the family. Now, with the family, Patricia exhibited a quiet but intense personality. She helped take care of the family's children and was extremely devoted to Charlie. Uh, next was. What's it next? We'll talk about the one of the first men to join join the family, and that's uh, Charles Denton Watson, who is known as Tex. And anybody familiar with the story, they know who Tex is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born on December second, nineteen forty-five, in Dallas, Texas. He was the youngest of three children, and grew up in a small town of Copeville, Texas. By his own accounts, he had a hot. He had a happy childhood, looking up to his parents who ran a gas station in town. The Watsons were church-going people. As Charles got older, he became more involved with church activities. In high school, he was an honorable student and held some of the town's uh, and held some of the town's sports records. Uh, he played football, basketball, track. Uh, during his junior year, Watson became an editor for a school newspaper. Now, things started to change when Charles went away to North Texas State University in uh, 1964. His grades started to slip as he became more interested. His grades started to slip as he became more interested in girls and booze. That happens to the best. Nah, I mean, that's, that's probably 60 <laughs> to 70 percent of college. Uh, <laughs> college good people. Mine started a very. I was gonna say mine. Freshman year of high school, yeah. man. <laughs> I'm like, what is all this? <laughs> Uh, through a roommate, Chris, uh, Chris, through a roommate, Charles got a job as a baggage boy for Braniff Airlines, and one of the perks were free flights. And once in a while, he would take a girl to Hawaii for the weekend. <laughs> I mean, it's a move. That is, is a power move. move. That is a power move. He knew move. exactly how yeah. to do it. Uh, it was around this period when he began smoking marijuana and experimenting with other drugs. Uh, his senior year, he decided to go to California to visit a frat brother. Impressed with it, Charles came back to Texas only to tell his parents he was moving out west. Now, in California, uh, Watson signed up for classes at Cal State and got a job as a wig salesman in Beverly Hills. Uh, he lived in a few different places. Uh, first, there was an apartment in Silver Lake, then he moved to Laurel Canyon. Uh, he messed up his knee in a car accident, which kept him out of the Army. I guess he was going to sign up for the Army. And then he dropped out of school. He moved to Malibu, where he opened up a wig shop with his roommate. Uh, it turned out to be a disaster, closing only a few months after opening. 
to pay the rent, Watson began dealing pot full time. Now, here's where everything gets connected. Uh, Texts he picked up Beach Boy Dennis Wilson while he was hitchhiking, and Wilson invited him back to the mansion. Watson visited the house several times and ended up living there for the summer. Charles Manson and the family were, were regulars at Wilson's mansion, and within time, Watson wanted to join, giving them all of his possessions. It, there, there's the switch, too, yeah. of, you know, it doesn't take... It's not just, you know, people that are lost have nothing that join, you know, cults. It's it, This guy have a lot of money. Does It, it all depends. It, yep, and I think I, at that time, too, I mean... I'm thinking like he, he he was willing you understand he was willing to give up everything he had for the family yeah. within a week of yeah. meeting this person. Yep. It's it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing the power that they like uh, I'm, Manson. Like I'm trying to like put myself in that time period in that situation. And if I have a failed business and basically I'm just living off of money that I'm selling drugs, you know. Mm. And I see this guy with 12 women who are all willing to have sex with me. It's a pretty, uh... Are you saying, are you are you going down the narrative that he was, it was more of him, like, show me your ways? You know? Like, show me your ways of how to attract like, at, at, at that same time, though, this may, this was the, the strange thing for me about, um, Wilson? Watson. Watson. This is the, the strange thing about Watson to me is, is men in that position in the late 60s they would have looked at that gang of hippies and been like, God damn, you know, this was a successful businessman. He had money. Yeah. It, he fits the bill for that, you know, that anti-hippie establishment, right. you know, rhetoric that these yeah. guys would come back in. He had in a it. good family, good upbringing. So it's, that's, he's the most interesting one to be sucked into the family because... And he's one of the most notorious yes, behind Manson. Of course, of course. And that's, that's, that, that's, that, that one will always like... Uh, that one will always. Yeah, sorry, he will always be the uh, the one that you know isn't supposed to be there for me. Right. Now he did he did uh, make a statement years later. And he said, "For years, I struggled to accumulate all I could: the right car, the right clothes, the right things that would somehow complete what I thought was missing inside of me." Mm-hmm. Now I gave all everything I had to Charlie, and suddenly I felt free. So strange. That's. It makes sense though. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the I mean, I, how many times do, do people, you know, tell you money, you know, money money can't buy you happiness. Right. Money can't fill that void that's in your yeah. space. So maybe, you know, living in a well, hippie commune. I mean, I always think every now and then, you know, like, oh, I just want to like go off the radar and just you know I can't give things up. <laughs> No, no, I am a material girl (laughs) living in a material world. Let me. I like things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I will say this though: if I was born, I I can never, I'll never know how I would be if I was born in a different time period. I always joke around with you too. I mean, you tell me I wouldn't survive the '80s if I was 22, 23 years old during the '80s. I probably I wouldn't have made it through. Yeah, I would have been in the clubs. Party. <laughs> oh, so you know, you never know. 1969. I and I know myself. I would have been a hippie. Yeah. I would have been there on Venice Beach, hanging out yep. with everybody. That's just how my personality is. Yeah. So who knows? 
So when uh, when they made it to Spawn's Ranch, uh, Charles Watson, he was given the name Tex by George Spawn. But I handed out nicknames, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if he rubbed his hand up uh, his leg too. <laughs> so he lived with the family throughout the fall of 1968, of course, enjoying the girls and the drugs, but he decided to leave in the end of November. Uh, Tex moved to Hollywood. He met a girl named Luella, and the couple, and the couple made a good living selling drugs. Uh, Tex bought expensive clothes and even began having his hairstyles. Uh, Luella ended up becoming pregnant and had to go down to Mexico to have an abortion. In March of 1969, Tex decided to go back to the family. This is a fateful decision. Uh, things had changed since he left. People were now a lot more serious and paranoid. Uh, rather than the carefree, sex and drug loving commune he once knew. Uh, in April, he was arrested in Van Nuys for public intoxication. He was he was high on Belladonna, slithering on his hands and knees through a crowd of children saying, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing about this, the, yeah. especially the family in general, the Manson family, is they... After the murders, I mean, we'll get down to the, that later. Is is they you like? It was such a pro anti drug movement because of the Manson family and what happened, right. and they 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 blamed drugs for all of this, and it it added to the the legislation that came after with psychedelics and all that stuff. And it's yeah. unfortunate that they didn't blame the crazy people that were in the family. They, right. The Manson himself, who was a, a legitimate cult leader yeah, at the time. Absolutely. And it was, it was all blamed on LSD. Yeah. Well, as we, as we talked drugs. in the story earlier, he was a pimp. Yeah. Or, you know, when he was out, out from prison, he was actually pimping women, yeah. which I we, mean, you could kind of turn around and say it's similar to being a, a cult leader. Yeah. Because he did use these women to get what he would. Yeah. He used these women to, to seduce basically, uh, Basically seduced Dennis Wilson, you know, from the Beast Boys. Yep. Basically live out of his house and spend hundreds of thousand dollars on the family, you know, for their gonorrhea treatments. <laughs> <The> gon- <laughs> uh, courtesy of Sadie. <laughs> That's one thing she gave to the family. Yep. The gift of love. Uh, all right. Yeah, so you could argue. I mean, gonorrhea is it's a gift of love. You yeah. Know? Just showing your interest. Sometime in the spring or summer of 1969. Both Manson and Tex went out looking for people to murder. I guess now they're escorted. They ended up at a casino waiting for people to come out. Tex, had, with a knife in his hand, came upon two elderly women in their car. And just in the nick of time, the women sped away. But uh, Manson and Watson gave two of them chase for about 15 minutes before giving up. I can't wait until we get into like further on in the story and we can actually really talk of like because you know after hearing that statement that they switch and all of a sudden start going you don't really understand why and the the messages that uh, Manson was giving them and the paranoia that he was giving them about why they decided to start murdering people out of nowhere and it 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 gets so wild it does yeah and and like I said you know this episode here is just an introductory getting to know who the characters are and, and, and where they came from and how they could have possibly been swayed you know, by, by Charles Manson. Yep. Uh, the next one here is Leslie Van Houten. Leslie was born on August 23rd, 1949 in Los Angeles. Uh, she and her older brother grew up in a typical middle-class household. Uh, Leslie's father was an automotive auctioneer, and her mother Jane was a schoolteacher. After Leslie, there were two more de- additions to her family. 
adopted a young boy and girl that had been orphaned in Korea. In 1963, Leslie's parents divorced, Paul moved out, and the children stayed with Jane. Meanwhile, Leslie began attending Monrovia High School, where she was twice elected homecoming queen. Dude, this is like the interesting thing. Yeah. You know? Some people, you know, they have like a shitty childhood. Yep. She was she was a homecoming queen. It the, doesn't it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. Yep. It, it's it's all if you're missing some sort of void, some sort yep. of like establishment. Now, like many at the time, she discovered hallucinogenic drugs and her grades soon started to slip. She drifted away from her extracurricular activities and shortly after got pregnant and was forced by her mother to have an abortion. Uh, after graduating high school in 1967, Leslie moved in with her father and began attending business college. She began gravitating towards spiritualism and planned to live in a yoga spiritual community. In the summer of 68, Leslie was visiting friends in San Francisco when she met Catherine Cher and Bobby Beausoleil, who we'll discuss later. Uh, she began traveling with them, and in September, they took her to meet Charles Manson at Spawn's movie ranch. He returned to their ranch three weeks later, and this time she didn't leave. Uh, like others in the family, Leslie became devoted to, to Manson. And according to her, she says, I, abs- I was absolutely intrigued and mesmerized by Manson, and I believed that he was someone very special and extraordinary. Bobby Beausoleil, the first of five children, Bobby was born in Santa Barbara, California in 1947. Bobby displayed an interest in music at a very young age and eventually taught himself how to play the guitar. Uh, when he was 16, he had an affair with his uh, cousin's wife, cousin left. Now, young Bobby, 16 years old, was forced to play the role of husband, working for a trailer company to support his cousin's wife and child. Uh, after the death of his grandmother, Bobby moved out and went to Los Angeles. There, he briefly played in a band called Grassroots. Now, Grassroots uh, would later achieve fame under the name Love. Never heard of him, but... Bobby also became friends with Frank Zappa and could be heard as a backup singer on Zappa's first record, Freak Out. You're a Frank Zappa? Might be, might be a little too young. Yeah, I'm a little too young for that one. Yeah, Zappa was like a 60s, 70s psychedelic... Artist, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of artists, isn't it amazing? Isn't it crazy that Manson w- would have had a song that was on the Beach Boys album, The Beach Boys? <laughs> That's crazy. You could actually go on uh, YouTube and hear all of Van- Manson's songs, like his original music, because in the, sometime in the seventies, uh, somebody actually produced recordings that Manson had did mm-hmm. and made an album. So he has like I don't know seven, eight songs out there. You know, you can actually pull up. All right, we're going to use it for the intro and the outro of this season. <laughs> who gets yeah. the rights? Yeah. Who gets the who gets the uh, the view money from that? Yeah. Now, if you take his song "Cease to Exist" mm-hmm. and put it side by side with uh, "Never Learn Not to Love," "Never Learn Not to Love" yeah. by the Beach Boys, they're basically the same exact song. Yeah. Uh, now back to Bobby. Uh, the City of Angels pro- proved to be too superficial, so he traveled north and fell in love with the Bay Area. San Francisco closely began playing with a band called The Outfit, but eventually dropped out and started his own band called Orchestra. Uh, They played throughout the Bay Area from 66 to 67, and they ended up breaking up. Uh, At this time, Bobby met a filmmaker named Kenneth Anger. Uh, They worked together on a film called Lucifer Rising, which never uh, basically fell apart and never, never really made it. In the fall of 1967, Beausoleil once again found acting work and was featured in a soft porn titled Ramrodder. 
Wait, it's not. You can't name a softcore porn ramrod. I know. That's not. It's got to be a full blown yeah. production right at that point. Right. Uh, the movie was filmed near Spawn's movie ranch and also starred Manson family member Catherine Scher. Uh, Bobby was living in the basement of a man named Gary Hinman, who will become a focal point in the story later on, at his Topanga Canyon home, where he first ran into Charles Manson and the family. Bobby's musical talent impressed Charlie and the girls, and uh, Bobby was welcomed into the family. So there, there, there's another one. You know, maybe he didn't have like the greatest, you know, yeah, yeah, like a typical upbringing. You know, but he had aspirations. He was playing in bands. He was basically filming movies and. And, you know, well, yeah, he's, he's content creating. Yeah. Oh God, what does that say for us? <sighs> Want to start a cult? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the. I don't have the it. You don't have I, the. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't have it. I can't tell you this. I would never. I would never join a cult. No. That's for sure. I, I know for a fact I wouldn't. I would laugh at like somebody who was like, "I'm the Almighty. <laughs> I have it all." Please follow me. Oh, imagine the smell in that fucking ranch, bro. Could no, you imagine no. patchouli soap, unwashed armpits, and line. they're just all sitting around fucking, yeah, dude, play that fucking song, yeah, you know, man. Song. Oh, and it's just, they're all like. Making love when they haven't showered. Yeah. Like, oh, God, like Harry. Probably smells. Actually, uh, in in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. which is a, it's not the story of them, but it's. It's, it's a telling. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's Quentin Tarantino's, like, Take on the Manson murders and the Manson family. Not, they have nothing to do with it. It's just, they're just part of the movie. Uh, but the, he does a great job of showing the ranch and like how disgusting it was in the movie. Like there's there's overflowing dishes, some, like weird crystal rock crystals all over the place. Oh, it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. ugh. No, the flies were so bad on the door. Remember? I don't remember if, you, if you've seen the movie, yeah, but they, yeah, yeah. They, when they open the door, like a like a, a tsunami of flies come flying out. <laughs> they're just loving life, man. No, when you get a second, go in. Uh... There's a website that I, you know I got some of this information from. It's called charlesmanson.com, and there's a link for the family, and it shows all of their arrest photos. Mm-hmm. And these people are looking rough. Yeah, I mean rough. Their hair's all mangled and better be right and smack dab in the center of that orgy. Huh? Like, oh yeah, just take it all in. So move, move your butts around. <laughs> Stop climbing over me! <laughs> what? Oh, oh Lord, is that smell? That's what I mean. You're like, oh, this, this guy is probably intrigued. How are all these yeah. girls hanging around? I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that family. No, I'd be like, all right, I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I got, I've had enough. Yeah. I'm going. Yeah. I'm going to go try to figure out the real world life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go find a shower, yeah. actually. That's what I want to find. Fucking, all right. Fucking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,. Next up is Linda Kasabian. She was uh, actually one of the ones who was directly involved with the murders. Uh, but she was more of the getaway driver uh, because she was the only one that had a driver's license. <laughs> Just by default, she's she's a getaway driver. She ended up meeting uh, a woman. She's like, hey, you know, there's this hippie commune, a safe and happy, you know, place where people can get away from the establishment. Yeah. yeah. The establishment the, was big in the 60s. Yep. Yeah. So she's like, all right, I'll check it out, you know. And it was the Manson family. And again, he was inspired by the message that Charles Manson was preaching. He's just sitting in his recliner. Oh, yeah. Sitting at the, 
group just in uh, yeah. sitting crisscross applesauce down yeah. on the floor. Yeah. Just yeah. he's like covered in flies. Oh my god! I don't get it. I don't understand it. I never will. Like if you walk into that room, okay, let's say that you're an it, outsider. It, you walk into that room and you see Charles Manson sitting there on his throne or whatever he's doing, playing. You know, <laughs> on his throne. It was a recliner. <laughs> just, just strumming his fucking guitar. Yeah, like, and there's a bunch of people just all like, oh, like zoned out from LSD and everything. And like you said, the smell of the fucking room and, and whatnot. Like I'd be like, uh, maybe free love isn't such a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go back with a capitalist yeah. over here. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'd like to pay a little bit for my love. So, <laughs> yeah, um, real quick, what was her last name? Kasabian. Kasabian. Yeah, Kasabian is uh, Krenwinkle. She's the hairy, the hairy leg girl from the photo. <laughs> she got, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the one that nobody was allowed to have sex with. Mm. All right, now here's a, a figure. His name is uh, Bruce Davis. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana, October 5th, 1942. He grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and was the youngest of two children. Uh, after high school, Davis attended college in Tennessee, but he uh, dropped out after two years. Uh, because he became immersed with the hippie counterculture. Now, in the West, uh, Davis made a living doing construction work, and in 1967 ran into Charles Manson, Mary Broner, Lynette Fromm, and Patricia Krenwinkel in Oregon. Uh, Manson liked having another man around. Plus, uh, you know, he and Bruce had a few things in common. Uh, Davis was a good musician. He had an interest in Scientology. Mm. Okay. Now, that's going to be a key figure also. Yes, for sure. Scientology. For sure. Uh, and uh, Davis was also an ex-con. So, uh, from November of 1968 to April of 1969, Bruce uh, moved away to London, England, where he was working at the Scientology headquarters. Davis was eventually kicked out of the organization due to his drug use, so he returned and rejoined the family. Davis acted as the comptroller. He uh, was responsible for handling all of the stolen credit cards and fake IDs. Now, a lot of people, you know, just at face value of the of the story of the murders, you know, people would assume that Tex Watson was Manson's right hand right hand man. Yeah. yeah, but it was actually Bruce Davis. It's strange too because when you see pictures of Bruce, he doesn't look like no, he doesn't look like he would be belong in that uh, right. that yeah. commune where Watson and Beausoleil kind of did. So to wrap up the introductions, we're going to touch on uh, morally questionable members of the, of the group. They were a couple of underage women that were lured into the family by Charles Manson, which he would have sex with and pimp out for personal gain. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were the seducers. Yep. Uh, the first was Diane Lake. She was born in December of 1953. Her parents were prominent members of the Wavy Gravies Hog Farm Commune. From an early age, Diane was subject to both group sex and hallucinogenic drugs. That's so sad that you're just born into that situation. Yep. Uh, in 1967, just before her 14th birthday, Diane met the family at a, at a home that they had called a Spiral Staircase, uh, which was in Topanga Canyon. Uh, with her parents' permission, uh, Diane Lake left to travel with the family. Charles Manson seemed to have it out for Diane uh, often beating her in front of others. I don't know what happened, what transpired, but because she was so young, she couldn't just up and leave. Yeah. She was stuck. Yeah. But, and then jumping from hippie commune to hippie commune. That, that, what a life. Uh, and the second uh, young girl was Ruth Ann Morehouse. Uh, she was born in Toronto, Canada on January 6, 1951. 
Uh, she first met Charles Manson in 1967 after her father, Dean Morehouse, who was a former minister, picked up Charles Manson hitchhiking. Uh, Charles had been traveling up and down the Pacific coast with Lynette Fromm and Mary Brunner. Uh, Dean welcomed the three into his home and preached to them over dinner. He gave Charlie a piano, which Manson traded towards a Volkswagen microbus, which he used uh, for the family to do their traveling. Uh, meanwhile, Charlie only had his eyes on one thing. Yeah, he was grateful for the piano. Yeah, thank you. What? That's so shitty that you yeah. you pull over someone and try to spend the word of God, and then he ends yeah. up stealing your fucking daughter. Yeah. That. Yeah, but Charlie only had eyes on uh, young Ruth Ann, and took her to Mendocino. Uh, when Dean found out, he vowed to kill Manson. However, Charlie calmed him down and introduced him to LSD, and they stayed at his house for a few weeks. While Dean thought Charlie was Christ-like, the mother, Mrs. Morehouse, didn't appreciate her husband's new house guests and left to live with her sister. So Using LSD as mind control. Like, yeah. Manson was the head of the CIA at that point. I know. I was going to say, was he a member? Was he a, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get to that later down the road. But he certainly knew how to talk to people when they were under the influence, too. Uh, yeah. Was, was that uh, MKUltra? MKUltra, yeah. Mind-altering? Yep. Uh, Charles Manson visited the Morehouse home a few more times before he and the girls decided to travel down to Southern California. Uh, before leaving, Charlie told Ruth Ann that she could come with them if she was married and she would be emanci- emancipated from her family. And so she did. A few weeks later, she married a bus driver and then immediately <laughs> left them to that, join the family that, in that, L.A. That poor, poor bus driver, man. <laughs> Uh, she began living with the family at various residences, including Spawn's movie ranch. The ranch's owner, George Spawn, gave her the nickname of Uwish, which is basically, uh, it sounds like if a guy is whistling at a girl or a beautiful girl is Uwish, yeah. Uwish. That was her nickname. Now, with the family, she went on garbage runs. Uh, where the family would dig through supermarket dumpsters looking for food. God. Uh, she panhandled and she took care of the children. Uh, her father, Dean, also spent time with the girls and turned into a, a worshiper of Manson himself. Father. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing the pull this guy had. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dean and Ruthann also spent time together at uh, Dennis Wilson's uh, mansion while the family was living there. And Manson would, out in the open, give sex with his daughter. And Dean, her father, was so tripped out in LSD that it didn't even fucking phase him. So sad. Free love. And that was another thing, you know, and then later on, Charles would, Ruth Ann was one of the ones, Charles was a nice young girl, beautiful girl, that he would pimp out for, for his own personal gains. So that's pretty much all the introductions. There's many, many, there's so many more family members, but, you know, a lot of them, although they're a part of the family and, you know, they all worship Charles Manson, they weren't, I guess, in the inner circle. Yeah, there's there was definitely... Um like rankings in the family some some of them even claim that they weren't even allowed to speak to, to manson right you know they they had the introduction week or something there was an introduction week and they heard the the word of manson and this and that and then they were sent off to do various tasks on the spawn watch yeah. they couldn't even stay they couldn't even go in the main cabin at that point where manson was and they would still follow yeah. those people fucking love him love this dude i'll do anything for him yep. even though i see him once every three weeks yep that's crazy so the inner circle was definitely the, you know, the yeah. most loyal, though. So the next episode, we're going to go right into the Tate and LaBianca murders. And, you know, now that we know who's who and what roles, you know, they played in within the family, 
it's definitely going to get fucking interesting. Yes, yes, for sure. Real fucking interesting. And I, and I like I, I told Garrett, you know, at first, I'm not much of a Charles Manson connoisseur, you know. So just like, you know, reading what I've read about him and, and seeing movies and documentaries and stuff about Charles Manson, I don't know. The dude was just too out there for me, yeah. you know. Like, I never really got got into the whole, the whole thing. But, you know, with Garrett's persistence, you know, this is... This is the Garrett story right here. This is this is this was definitely his uh his his this thing. Um, now that I've like looked more into it, like this. Oh man, just just wait. This, uh, I'm glad you mentioned. I'm, I'm glad I you know. Do this I'm because, glad cause you got lost in it for a second. Oh yeah. I know you, when you were when you were writing the story, you definitely got lost in it. I know, I'm you, like, I know you did. I, I know we, we. I saw Garrett at work, and I'm like, bro, there is just so twists and turns and mm-hmm. people and this guy alternate theories and, and, and it's like wow this is like a mind fuck this whole fucking story helter skelter is one of the greatest stories ever written and i was yeah. I'm, I'm using that in loosely like obviously right. it's 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 a crazy i think it was the, the turn of the, the the time period too you know with with media being so accessible that it's it, it spawned like legislation was made because of this yeah it, it was yeah. a huge event band names were named after him you know it's it's amazing that one cults already get so much fame because people don't understand it's a it's a misunderstanding of the situation right. and that's why and i think man the manson family was the original you know they were the og that started it that put things on the map and i feel like they gave like manson gave a lot of these cult guys the idea the blueprint so yeah it's, it's definitely a very interesting story so that'll do it for this episode but before we go if you like what you heard go to apple podcast spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review and do not forget to become an amazing criminal on patreon visit patreon.com backslash criminal af links to our support socials merchandise and more are in the episode description now signing off from studio chloroform keep your head on a swivel and take care till next time now, now give me our theme music. See ya. See ya.